It's the 16th of September, 1408. In a cramped and dimly lit stone church in southern Greenland, Sigrid Bjørnsdottir and Thorstein Olofsson tie the knot. This was not how the two newlyweds had thought their wedding would go. They had originally planned to marry in Iceland with their friends and family, but while sailing back from Norway, a storm had blown them off course, and once it had subsided, the couple made for the nearest friendly settlement, the place that Chief Eric the Red had named Greenland some 400 years ago. Though colder and darker than either of their homes, the newlyweds were charmed by their distant Norse cousins and decided to extend their stay in the exotic place. In fact, they liked it so much that eventually they decided why not marry and settle down here. As the sound of music, cheer and laughter filled the tiny church, no one could possibly know that in just over 100 years later, almost every trace of civilization would vanish. It was as if the Norse had never been there at all. What went wrong? What had happened? Well, to answer that, we need to go back 426 years. In the year 982, Eric stood on the most northwest tip of Iceland, staring out into the cold, dark abyss. The sea swell bashed violently against the docks. It had been a rough winter, and it was about to get rougher. The few friends that he had silently loaded up his ship as he prepared for his three-year exile. Having already been exiled from Norway as a child, and now Iceland as an adult, there was very few places left for him to go. Eric was not a violent man, well, at least he didn't think so, but he hated thievery. He had lent his enchanted wooden boards to his friend, Thorgest, some time ago. The boards were more than just decorations, they were very old, from a time before Christianity had even reached Iceland, and they had been imbued with old magic from his patron god, Thor. It turned out Thorgest liked them, just as much as Eric, in fact, so much so that he refused to return them. Eric had made it clear there would be violence if his old friend went down this path, and as the old Norse saying goes, en skalita nan gumal hunya, one should listen when an old dog barks. A battle was fought between the two men, and now two of Thorgest's sons lay dead. Eric had been sentenced to exile. For three years he must leave Iceland and not return under pain of death. And so, he and a few companions prepared to board his ship and sail off into the great unknown, in search of a mystical, unnamed island that had been discovered by accident a hundred years earlier. He had no map, no compass, and with only a vague direction of where to head, the venture had little chance of success. But he had always considered himself lucky. It was time to see if Odin still smiled upon him. You're listening to Anthology of Heroes, and this is the story of Eric the Red, and the lost colony of Greenland. In today's society, looking back, we tend to think of the Norsemen as marauders or plunderers. It's not hard to see why. The horned helmets, dark face tattoos, and hallucinogenic herbs make for great stories. But there was another aspect of Northern culture that always takes back seat, exploration. The Norsemen were prolific explorers, while their exploits fighting for Roman emperors in the east are fairly common knowledge, their expeditions west are often skimmed over. Eric's story today comes to us from two primary sources known as sagas. Sagas were oral stories told from one generation of Norse to the next. But they weren't static. They were altered with each retelling. Details were added or removed depending on the audience. For example, when Christianity was becoming all the rage. References to Norse gods may be replaced by references to God or Jesus. 
So while we can get a good understanding of places and events, there is a degree of ambiguity that is unavoidable in this story. So just try and bear that in mind. Eric was born in Rogaland around the year 950 in a particularly scenic part of Western Norway, just south of modern-day Bergen. His father was a man named Thorvald Asvaldsson, and in Norse tradition, your father's name plus the suffix son is your last name, so he became Eric Thorvaldsson. When Eric was about 10, he found himself spirited away from the comparatively sunny Norway to dark and gloomy Iceland. This wasn't a choice, so to speak. Thorvald was sentenced to exile for what the sagas flippantly refer to as, quote, some killings, and so Eric went with him. Eric and his father arrived and settled in Hornstrandir, in the most northern west part of Iceland. Like his home in Norway, this part of Iceland is incredibly beautiful and rugged, but not ideal farmland. In fact, there wasn't really much of that left at all. Iceland had been settled around 75 years earlier by Norse settlers, and in that time they had been very busy indeed. The small island, which once had 40% of its landmass covered in forest, had been completely stripped bare where mighty birch trees once stretched as far as the eye could see, sheep and goats now grazed, further damaging the soil. Around 1,500 farms covered the small Arctic island. In a way, Iceland was full. Nevertheless, Eric took to his home well enough. His father died not too long after, and he met a wife, Todgehild. I'm going to apologise in advance to any Scandinavians cringing at me trying to pronounce your beautiful language with my guttural Australian tongue, but anyway. Todgehild's land was better, so Eric moved there and established a farm, creatively named Eric's Home. Remnants of Eric's Home still stand today, and I'll be putting a picture up on our Instagram page, at Anthology of Heroes, or one word. Eric and Todgehild got down to business quickly, and the two had four children, Freydis, a daughter, and three sons. Thorstein, Thorvald, and Leif. It seemed that Eric was settling in comfortably to life in Iceland, and perhaps he would live out his days farming, feasting, and caring for his new family. But soon it became clear the fiery temper that had gotten his father into trouble was something that Eric had inherited. In fact, it's possible that this is where his moniker, the Red, originates from, either this or due to his striking red beard. Eric, like most other landowners, had a group of slaves tilling his land, feeding the animals, tending to the chores, and so on. While doing their duties, a few of his slaves started a small landslide on a farm bordering Eric's homestead, likely an accident. The owner of the farm, a man affectionately known as Eowulf the Fowl, killed the slaves in anger. Eric, in turn, killed Eowulf and one of his friends, Harfen the Dula. As punishment, a council banished Eric from his lands for a predetermined period of time, probably about three years. So, while counting down his exile, Eric and his family lived on the islands of Brockney and Oxney, two desolate islands off the west coast of Iceland. During his time on the islands, Eric lent his wooden bench boards to a friend, Thorgest. If you're unsure what bench boards are, don't worry, I was too. The translations of the saga give slightly different meanings to what these were, but they seem to have been a few carved wooden boards that would have lined the inside of a house as a kind of decoration. These particular boards were said to be enchanted and held special significance to Eric. Perhaps they'd been family heirlooms. As Eric was currently serving exile for another murder, you'd think Sorgest would realise he was not a man to be trifled with, but apparently not. Once Eric's exile was up, he returned to his homestead, 
and requested the bench boards returned. Thorgest refused. The tension between the two men built. Many of their friends were forced to take sides, and two sort of posses formed, Eric leading one and Thorgest leading the other. Eventually, Eric got his boys together and marched over to take the bench boards back by force. Thorgest and the lads blocked the way and the two sides fought it out. By the end of the brawl, two of Thorgest's sons lay dead and a few others. The fight was inconclusive and both sides kept their men together waiting for a round two. But at the next council, known as a thing, it was determined that the one to blame for the feud was Eric and his men. And for a second time, he was sentenced to exile. The fate of the bench boards is a mystery to this day. As Eric prepared for the third exile of his life, he must have felt a sense of shame. For the second time now, he had to drag his family away from their home and their community, all because he couldn't control his temper. But this time, he wasn't going to be stuck on a tiny barren island gawping at civilization from the coast. No, it was time to prove to Thorgest and his bunch of cowards that he would make something of himself. Eric had decided that he would head west. Hello everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts. The huge frozen landmass we now know as Greenland had not escaped popular imagination in Icelandic culture. The place was seen as an exotic and dangerous land, which nothing was certain about. It had been sighted for the first time about 50 years ago when a Norwegian man named Gunbjörn Olsen had been blown off course on his way to Iceland from Norway. Then, around 20 or so years after that, a more thorough expedition was led by another man, Stabjorn Galti who intended to settle on the East Coast. Though this expedition at least made landfall, it quickly turned into disaster as many members of the group turned on each other in the cold, dark Greenlandic winter, and many, including Snabjorn himself, were killed. Originally there was a saga detailing this troubled expedition, but like many others, it's been lost to time. So, with only a vague set of directions, Eric, a small group of his friends, and his young family set off looking for the fabled western landmass. The ship Eric would have taken was known as a Nar. The Nar differed from the usual raiding longship you might be picturing. It was shorter, sturdier, and deeper. It was around 16 metres, or 54 foot, long, 
by 4.6 metres or 15 foot wide and was powered primarily by wool and sail with oars only used if there was no wind. I'll be uploading a few pictures of some real excavated Viking ships on our Instagram, including the impressive Osberg ship which I saw in person at the Viking Ship Museum in Norway. Eric's ship could hold an impressive 24 tonnes or so of people, livestock and cargo, all of which lived completely exposed to the elements with no cabins or rooms to sleep in. For that reason, the journey itself would have to be made in spring, and even then, it was certainly no picnic. They were sailing across a body of water known as the Denmark Strait. It was full of icebergs, choppy water, and usually blanketed in fog. In between the cargo, chickens, sheep, and oars, 30 women, men, and children braved the frigid rain and strong winds in search of Eric's promised land. After a taxing journey of around a week or so, glacial landfall was finally sighted, much to the relief of Eric's family, I'm sure, who would probably spend the last seven days spooning a sheep with an oar pressed against their back as they slept. Following the coastline around, they finally landed at a southern fjord of the continent, which Eric creatively named, wait for it, Eric's Fjord. Over the next few winters, he and his band of settlers scouted out the coastline, looking up for the most choice land and naming them after Eric. I'm not kidding. After Eric's Fjord, they named an island Eric's Island, and another piece of land literally was just called Eric's Land. At the end of three years, Eric and his family returned home to Iceland. His exile was up, and it was time to move on. He started a fight with Thorgest again. Clearly not one to let sleeping dogs lie, Eric returned and immediately fought Thorgest again. Those bench boards must have been pretty sweet indeed. Unfortunately for Eric, he was defeated, but was somewhat gracious in his loss as both men were willing to reconcile their differences. There were no further disagreements between the men after this. Eric's return would have definitely been the talk of the town. For the first time, someone had lived and seemingly thrived in this exotic western land. Eric played this up, naming the country he had founded Greenland, reckoning that a more fertile-sounding name would help lure new settlers, particularly as Iceland had experienced a difficult famine made worse by overpopulation. So, with a catchy name, a bunch of landmarks named after him, and a vague idea of where to go, Eric convinced others to return with him to the new settlements the very next summer. With a huge fleet of around 25 ships and around 500 people in total, the group set sail west for Greenland. But they wouldn't have the same luck Eric had. Either due to tough weather or difficulty navigating, 11 ships turned around and headed back to Iceland, some which never made it home and were not seen or heard from again. But Eric's trusty vessel and 14 others did indeed make it safely to Eric's fjord on the southern tip. There wasn't enough good farming land for the hog group, so they split in two. One stayed at Eric's fjord, and the other headed west to one of the lands Eric had scouted on his last trip, very near the modern capital of Greenland, Nuuk. And so it was, Eric the Red became Chief Eric the Red. But it wouldn't be fair to call him the founder of Greenland. Across the other side of the island lay a handful of settlements inhabited by what later Norsemen called Skraelings, what we used to call Eskimos, and what we now call Inuits. These Inuit groups were roughly split into the Thule and the Dorset, both of which had been in the area far, far longer than Eric had, with some settlements dating back to 2000 BC. I'll be uploading a few maps on our Instagram page to show where these settlements were located around Greenland. It helps to give a bit of perspective. Eric and his family settled into their new lifestyle. 
For the first time, there was probably a sense of comfort knowing that they weren't going to be uprooted by the family patriarch after another run-in with Thorgist. His children, though, were restless and wanted to live up to their father's reputation. Over the next few years, they'd come and go, travelling to Norway and Iceland and back. But one of the times when his son Leif returns, he's preaching the new trendy religion, Christianity. Leif's new religion finds a good amount of new converts, but his father is not one of them. Eric, stubborn as ever, refuses to convert, even after his wife says she will not be sleeping with him until he does. Eric sticks to his pagan ways, but reluctantly allows her to build a small church on their farm. The church has since been reconstructed. We've got a picture of it on our Instagram page. It's likely the first church to ever be constructed on the continent of America. Over the next few years, Chief Eric hosts many events for his old friends when they come visiting, including the preparation of a Yule feast, which is believed to be in honor of Odin, the god of wisdom. His son Leif, who had now made his name as a bold explorer, convinces many Greenlanders to head even further west in search of another landmass he had named Vinland. Like his father, the young man lures settlers with a catchy name, with Vinland referring to either excessive grapevines or excessive farming land. Eric, now in his 50s, is swayed by his son's tales of another foreign land and is convinced to come along. But on the way to the docks, he's thrown off his horse and decides that this is fate's way of warning him not to take part. We'll be covering this adventure on another episode, but Vinland was more than likely Canada, making Leif Erikson the first European to set foot on American soil. Leif would return to Greenland later with all manner of exciting stories, but sadly, Eric would not be there to welcome him. Sometime after his son's departure, he died from either complications due to the fall from his horse, or a kind of epidemic, like a plague or famine within the colony. However his death came around, it shows that life was no picnic in such a harsh and unfamiliar land. But Eric had always known that, and it didn't matter. For him, true freedom came from charting one's own course and dropping anchor wherever fate guided you. Wait, 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 hang on. But what about the wedding at the start and the colony? What happened to it? Eric's colony, known to history as the Eastern Settlement, despite the fact that it was Southern, would continue to eke out an existence in this harsh and unforgiving land. But sometime around the 1500s, they vanished. Like something out of a horror movie, Norse explorers arrived at the old location of Chief Eric's colony, and all they could find was an old stone church. The very same one our newlyweds from the start of the episode were married in. Looking around at the deserted Arctic waste was almost like no one had ever been there at all. Remember, this was a well-established colony that had existed for over 500 years, trading regularly with both Iceland and Norway. What on earth happened? In 1257, on the other side of the world, a volcano erupted in Lombok, Indonesia. This was an eruption like no other, at least not in the last 10,000 years or so. When scientists measure volcanic eruptions, they use what's called a VEI, or Volcanic Eruption Index. For context, The 2019 New Zealand that killed 22 had a VEI of 2. The eruption of Mount Vesuvius that wiped out the Roman city of Pompeii had a VEI of 5. But when this thing went off, it had a VEI of 7. It belched out so much ash into the atmosphere, it actually cooled the climate all across the world, likely contributing to what's now referred to as the Little Ice Age. All around the world, crops failed as they were not able to grow within the altered weather patterns. Famine followed soon after. For the Norsemen of Greenland who were already living life on the edge, there was no room for error. 
The crops and animals they had managed to rear on the frozen frontier began to wither and die. We know this from the diet of the settlers. Scientists studied them and found out that towards the twilight of the colony, they began to rely more and more on seal and walrus rather than the traditional foodstuff, crops and any other mainland animals they'd brought with them. And crucially, unlike the Thule people who lived up north, the Norse settlers never learnt to use a harpoon, so they were at a disadvantage when it came to catching their new primary form of food. This wasn't as big of a deal when there were other food sources, but now, if all you had to eat was walrus, you'd want to be pretty good at catching it. For the Thule, use of harpoons and hunting dogs made them expert seal hunters, so the Little Ice Age didn't change much for them, but for the Norsemen, it changed everything. Their settlements, which were once capable of large-scale population, simply withered away. They just couldn't feed everyone anymore. With the larger colonies breaking away, perhaps some smaller groups managed to catch a ride back to civilization on Iceland or Norway. There's also a few unsubstantiated stories of a final Thule raid on the last remaining Norse settlement. Can you imagine this? A war in the dark Arctic winter with bony and sick Viking warriors pulling out their ancient and precious iron swords against a native populace bent on removing them from their lands. Another equally unreliable but interesting story tells of the Norse colony being raided by Europeans and the survivors simply packing up and leaving. It seems that we'll never likely know for sure. Whatever the reason, be it climate change, war, plague, or a combination, the ruins of a tiny stone church are now all that remains of the forgotten colony of Eric the Red. Thanks again for tuning into Anthology of Heroes. If you're enjoying the show, join us on Instagram, where I post regularly about upcoming episodes and historical curiosities. Our handle is at Anthology of Heroes, or one word. See you on the next one. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts.